What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson. And today we've got Kiara Mitchell. Hello. Uh, Hunter Marsden. Yo. Alex Audie. G'day. And Jake Dello. What's up? So one quick hit. It might actually be quick. Who knows? Uh, before we okay. get into it, <laughs> the the journal, which it's a peer-reviewed journal called Survival. Actually, I can tell already this is not going to be a quick hit. So the the journal Survival, it's a strategic studies, security studies journal, hybrid policy academic. But they published an article by Daniel Dudney and John Eikenberry, two kind of stalwart liberal internationalists. And the whole piece was a kind of academic hit piece on the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, which is the restrainer, transpartisan, sort of lefty, but sort of not think tank, um, urging restraint in foreign policy. And uh, we've talked about them many times. I have mixed views of them. I'm definitely like, I want to be sympathetic to them. And occasionally I'm like in line with their ideological flow so to speak but... Man, every time we talk about the quincy institute it's a it's a defense on how you don't support them but you wish you could i want to support yeah every they, single time you sound like an abused partner they occupy a space that is very important and that could be sort of transformative to like the foreign policy establishment, dare I say, the world. Um, and I feel like they're kind of spoiling it or squandering that position sometimes, particularly because of how antagonistic the establishment uh, feels their being and how they are sort of mutually antagonistic. And it's the establishment that sort of controls things. So they're playing uh, an antagonistic outsider's game instead of an insider's game which is whatever, it's a choice. But this piece by Dunny and Eikenberry, it goes through, I think I was, we talked about on this pod when the tablet magazine had this hit piece on Quincy and I was interviewed for it. And this journal article is kind of like a more elaborate version of that. Um, they make a, a broad sweeping claim that like Quincy, they're not in bed with Trump, but like they share so too much in common with Trump, which I think is just like patently false. Trump did so many sort of militaristic things and he took so many actions. He closed zero bases. Like there's almost nothing that Quincy and Trump align on. So like there's an element of like caricature yeah. in, in the argument that Dunny and Eikenberry propose, but they also fail. They say that Quincy is lacking in a kind of positive agenda for a foreign policy and that restraint lacks a positive agenda. And so uh, I just wanted to like, hit a couple points and then if you guys have thoughts no worries like well let's talk about it but one there is a kind of subtext in Dudney and Eikenberry that like equates Quincy with the left and Quincy is not left it's transpartisan right there's paleo conservatives there there's like weirdo libertarians there yeah and then there's a, a cross-section of the left, like the anti-hegemonist, anti-imperialist cross-section of the left, right? But that's it. Like, they're not, they're not actually left. And, like, when liberal internationalists claim that, like, or they attack Quincy, they do so as if Quincy is the only coherent challenger to liberal internationalism. And that's not true. Yeah. And, and by <laughs> focusing fire and focusing attention on Quincy, what they're doing whether it's deliberate or not, is 
creating blind spots for every other challenge to liberal internationalism. So like the Eikenberries of the world are like, well, if we can hit a home run on fucking Quincy's face, then liberal internationalism will stand. Like we will still be triumphant or whatever the fuck. That's very, very wrong, you know? And then the other thing I wanted to just note, liberal internationalism in Washington especially is hegemonic. It's the dominant position. It's the one, it's the default, it's taken for granted. It's the ideological flow. The, the like liberal internationalists, in, in, including in this survival piece, they're very quick to point out that there's Coke money, for example, behind Quincy funding, which is gross, right? Not a fan of that. For, for one thing, if you want to get into the dirty funding comparison, all the think tanks in D.C. are funded by like fucking Lockheed Martin. So exactly, exactly. That's what I'm talking about. What are they? What are they shitting on each other for? They're all funded by the same fair cap. Yeah, those are not grounds for taking issue with Quincy. I feel like if you're a liberal internationalist, but more than that, it's it's that Quincy has to make alliances or like people who are against the status quo, whether they're Quincy or not, they have to make alliances with others regardless of how unsavory they are sometimes in a balance of power logic because they're not occupying the central position because they're punching up because they are working against the stronger power so to speak and so if you're in the hegemonic position you don't you're not punching up you're punching down the whole time so you can you can be a little sanctimonious about things like oh coke money Right. Because it's like, oh, that's no good. That's distorted. And like, while I'm personally I have big issues with the Coke money thing, I kind of get it. It's the black radicals reaching out to Mao. You know, I'm I'm not of the camp that thinks that that's what you should be doing or that's even what you need to do. But there is a way of thinking, especially on the left, that says, like, you do need to form these coalitions with like minded or if like you have a common cause. And liberal internationalism just happens to be in a privileged position where it doesn't have to do that. Right. Focusing attention on Quincy distracts from other ideas in the progressive ecosystem, but even beyond it, frankly, that do represent coherent challenges to liberal internationalism. This is something I have in the works uh, coming soon, hopefully. But there's other stuff like out there even beyond what I'm doing. And to the idea of like reducing sort of the left to Quincy or reducing alternatives to liberal internationalism to Quincy is a political move. And this happens to be by the guys, by the way, Dudney and Eikenberry, who wrote that fucking sham Roosevelt Doctrine foreign policy piece that I trashed like we talked like a month ago or whatever it was. So I don't know. They're on they're on this like save liberal internationalism project. And it, it's we need to be clear about like that's what's going on here. It's interesting that it's the liberal internationalists coming after um, the Quincy Institute, because typically my Twitter feed is occupied, you know, every time the Quincy Institute puts out a new report. Um, such as the, there's a new piece or report on the South China Sea, it tends to be the sort of hardcore realists who come after them um, based on their assumptions regarding U.S. primacy and uh, China's intentions. And, and so I hadn't really, I'm not as familiar with the uh, Eikenberry, I haven't read the Eikenberry and Dudney piece, um, but it's interesting to see that there are attacks from both sides. Yeah, well, so realists are split on this too because realists are a hugely capacious camp so like patrick porter 
is one of the more prominent realists out there right now. But he's a realist in a very sort of Hans Morgenthau, uh, keep your powder dry kind of way. So like he he right. he is Defensive. an act yeah he's an active restrainer and he's like he's extremely in the ideological flow of Quincy like very much so um, even though he's not progressive at all and so like to the extent that he's representative of realism representative of realism realism is in line with Quincy the problem is that realism is just so eclectic that like he's only one strand of it I also get the sense. Um just based on their their title alone, that there's a larger debate going on around restraint. I'm thinking in particular um, of the way Mike O'Hanlon, who's like a, a hawk Democrat, very centrist, um, center left figure at the Brookings Institution, his new book um, called The Art of War in, the, in an Age of Peace, U.S. Grand Strategy and Resolute Restraint. I listened to a podcast discussion. He's He's really trying to reclaim the grounds for restraint in a way that's not sort of the isolationist variety. Yeah, all of these terms, by the way, we're going to get fucking emails because you use the word isolationist, but um, <laughs> the, the all of these terms, like they lack fixed meaning in time and space. So the, there, there's kind of ongoing flow of contestation around what these terms ought to mean. In fact, I, I would say the same about isolationism, but isolationist happens to be like, more of a hot potato word right now than it has been in a long time than especially some of these other words but yeah i would not be surprised one of the things that's happening on a meta level amid the think tank world right now is jockeying for control over how we understand these different labels because these labels have a built-in kind of fan base or built-in support so like if you can co-opt what restraint is, there's a whole community that sort of has to go along with that. You know, during the 2020 yeah. election, we did this. A lot of people were doing this with progressive. A lot of people. I was part of that. But like <laughs> there was this debate over like who gets to own the label progressive and positioning like, oh, well, that's progressive. That's not progressive. Right. I mean, that's like what half of this show is. And so like the the, the, the lack of fixed meaning just means that like you're gonna see people posturing or trying to appropriate terms to mean particular things because there's political and strategic value in that and it's happening at like a kind of in between the lines what is it interstitial kind of layer of reality even as they're writing normal think tank reports and stuff and i feel like what you're saying with o'hanlon is very much that Let's do Prediction Market, where we get Van to predict outcomes from today's current events and keep track of them. All right, for Prediction Market this week, question one. Following the confirmation that nine-member um, nine delegation from the Taliban had recently held talks in Beijing, will we see any Chinese intervention in the region before October? And I know that's a big you know, Chinese intervention, but that could really mean anything. That could mean military aid, that could mean security aid infrastructure aid what yeah. should we expect anything oh well definitely something will happen like the chinese will play in afghanistan in a way that they have not before i think it's kind of a question of how it power pours a vacuum a great power moves out another one god knows why moves in i read these talks as bringing a taliban-led afghanistan into uh china's sphere of influence 
And it doesn't mean that like China will actively control it any more than we did. Um, and yeah. the Taliban does not run Afghanistan yet. Although this does, this is like a horrible harbinger for the future for yeah. <laughs> the Afghanistan government. So like, this is not good for Afghanistan, but it, it looks to me like China is positioning itself to suborn a Taliban Afghanistan within its ideological flow. I mean, it also looks more by China moving into there, even if it's strategic folly in terms of like nobody dictates how Afghanistan works, you know, in that sense, it seems kind of almost silly to uh, try and uh, have a presence in Afghanistan of any of like a strategic variety. But it feeds this Chinese narrative that they've been building their foreign policy on since Xi Jinping came to power. Right. China's ascendance, America's yeah. decline. America pulling out of Afghanistan is part of China's narrative of decline. That's fucking ridiculous for all kinds of reasons. It's, I would say it's, I'd say pulling out of Afghanistan is the opposite. It's like shoring up American strength, what's left of it getting out. But yeah, like the, the fact of what's happening, like the look of one getting out and another getting in kind of reinforces a larger narrative that drives Chinese foreign policy anyway. Well, shit, hopeful as ever for prediction market. Question two, following the recent attempt to dissolve the Tunisian government by its president, which pro-democracy groups are calling a presidential coup, do you think he will be successful? And if so, will we see any international sanction diplomacy as a result? The self-coup is now officially a thing. That's that's what I took away from this. Like presidents are now trying to like overthrow themselves so that they can stay in power. Yeah, I, I feel like he will be successful from 2011. I've been pessimistic about the Arab Spring for a variety of reasons. But in Tunisia was sort of, yeah, yeah ground started, zero. Started in Tunisia. Yeah. So, yeah. so that it's a bad it's a bad look in terms of like the larger hopeful once hopeful trend of democratization um, in the Arab world. There was always there was always very little basis to make like projections one way or another about yeah. that, but yeah, like we're in the age where uh, autocrats have seemingly more impunity than they used to, and uh, people in power use power to reduce accountability against themselves. So, whatever, this is where we are. Will sanctions follow? I don't know. Yes, I don't know. <laughs> Eventually, maybe. It's hard to tell. It's. It's absolutely terrifying. And for all my listeners that would usually expect, you know, a third question that's sort of out of the way in places Van really does know a lot about around the world, um, that's coming next week. So we've got three questions of, you know, places that we haven't really checked up on in the world much next week. Oh, great. I mean, oh, great. (laughs) (laughs) Time for Stay Off Twitter, where we curate the best and worst of Twitter so that you don't have to. Sweet, so we've got two for Stay Off Twitter this week. Um, so the first one's from Decker Everleth, a student at Reed College, and his tweet is, it's a, a quote tweet of a photo of a B-52 over Kabul, and his comment on it is, flying a B-52 over Kabul in an attempt to deter a bunch of dudes with homemade rockets sums up pretty much everything wrong that's wrong with US, Middle East, North Africa strategy. Yeah, so, yeah. it really is. It's an illustration of... What's wrong with thinking about deterrence in relation to overmatch, military superiority, 
if you have superior capability, you demonstrate it, and then that somehow benefits you. But actually, this is just one big grift, you know? It's inertia. The B-52, I guess grift and inertia are not the same thing, but the B-52 flying over Kabul is just an extension of a kind of habit, but the habit is necessary. This habit of like deterrence by flexing is necessary in order to keep the grift of like Pentagon spending open. You have to show that the B-52 is useful in all sorts of ways, despite the fact that we don't use it in a kinetic sense anywhere. Why would you not fly it over Kabul if you're in that kind of uber militarist mindset? But like a normal person, free thinking human being, or even a semi not free thinking human being can understand that like the Taliban A is not going to get shook by B-52s. B, even if they were shook by B-52s, what do we get by making them shook? Nothing except more funding for the B-52. So whatever. Nukes over Baghdad. Second tweet is from Blake Herzinger, and he's quote tweeting a CNN article saying that Kamala Harris is promoting an America is back message in Singapore and Vietnam. And so he says, what does back mean? We weren't doing it right before Trump either. Have some real policy in sectors that matters and stop acting like being not a Trump is an achievement. Yeah, the, the I think the underlying message here is super spot on, right? Not being Trump is not good enough, uh, particularly like for one thing, everybody's kind of updated to the fact that like Trump is no longer there. That is discounted for whatever that was originally worth in the first place. But in Asia and in Southeast Asia, where Kamala Harris is going, uh, where they're going to portray this America is back message, there was kind of mixed views of, of the U.S. to begin with. And so the message that America's back is not one that's going to sell well. And experts in the region have been saying this since before Biden was inaugurated. Like, I remember in November and December last year, experts talking about, like, that's the wrong kind of branding in Asia. And so if you're trying to play the influence game and you're worried about Chinese influence in particular, play to the needs of the ASEANs, in this case especially. And what, does the, what do the ASEANs care about? They do not care about the great power game. They actually want to be, like, minimally affected by it. You know, what they want is vaccines. They want a post-pandemic economic recovery. You know, they want solutions to climate change. And there's polling we talked about in a past episode. There's polling that supports this. All their priorities in ASEAN for foreign policy are very, very, very close to the priorities of like a progressive foreign policy. But Biden is not by any means running a progressive foreign policy at this point. And America is back is like a substitute for that. It's like what justifies America is back is basically the liberal internationalist bumper sticker, you know, and that's not where the region is so much at. Um, and that's not where I think it needs to be. Yeah, I, th I think that's spot on, Dan. Um, I, I wish Blake was specific in what he's calling for here with uh, real policy. Um, and I, I think you hit on some of those uh, ideas. You know, um, Southeast Asian countries want economic engagement. They want trade investment. They want infrastructure investment. They want uh, climate change resilience policy. Um, and those are things that 
I think they would be excited by should the US actually man up and uh, put forward some uh, concrete policy ideas, which they haven't showing up as the bare minimum. Um, but that's that's where I would push back on this just a bit. I do think it matters that America is showing up. Defense uh, Secretary uh, Lloyd Austin was just in Vietnam, Singapore, and the Philippines. I think it matters when uh, U.S. heads of state show up to ASEAN summits. We'll see what happens in November. But, you know, it depends on what do you do when you're back, when you show up. Yeah. I mean, the Obama era kind of proved that, like, participation is necessary, but showing up is definitely not enough. The The goodwill you get from showing up is pretty marginal. It's just that, like, you can't really accomplish anything if you're not showing up. And so you show up, but it's like saying you do diplomacy. That doesn't really mean anything. Like, what's the underlying concept? How are you orchestrating yeah. diplomacy? You yeah. know, that's what's missing. And that's what is going to lead us astray, I think, if we think that America's back is the right message, because it makes it sound like showing up is the answer. Also, Kamala, Kamala Harris is like not popular right now, like really not popular. Um, <laughs> there was some polling that just looked like shit. And uh, I don't know if this this tour is going to help her or if it's supposed to. That's for another day, I guess. I probably shouldn't get into any Harris bashing right now. Um, OK, I have two quick tweets. One from Nathan Robinson. He's the editor or founder of uh, Current Affairs, which is uh, a very interesting journal, lefty journal. And uh, he says, it's kind of chilling how little daylight there is between Anders Breivik's 2011 mass murder manifesto and the table of contents in today's right-wing books about the left. And Anders, yep. Anders Breivik is the fucking psycho white supremacist guy in 2011 that god what what country was it was it norway Norway. who fucking killed a bunch of like center left party people and in 2011 like that was very ahead of the curve it felt like you know like it was a the kind of thing that we associate more with the trump years but he was really laying it down and he had this manifesto and nathan robinson like cuts it out and puts it on the tweet where it reads like like all this shit that we're talking about now coming out of the GOP. The guy's manifesto, the mass murderer, white supremacist, fascist manifesto. What is political correctness? Political correctness is cultural Marxism. Profiles in cultural Marxism. Academic reform needs. Deconstructing the literature on cultural Marxism. Radical feminism and political correctness. What's wrong with the Frankfurt School? This is all the, this is all shit. That's those are all like literally uh, copy and paste. That's verbatim quotes. The far right in particular has made a, an existential boogeyman of critical theory and critical postures of knowledge. And this guy in particular, Breivik, used it as the sort of platform incitement to violence. And one of the reasons he conducted the mass slaughter in Norway was to uh, disseminate, to proliferate, to draw attention to this platform. And this is the platform that the GOP is now carrying. And I see little pockets of it even here and there in New Zealand, too, like this has traction, right? This is the critical race theory wedge is in addition to this. It's like an adjunct to this larger platform of creating an enemy out of 
critical ways of thinking in general, whether it's left or not, you know, uh, very disturbing, very disturbing. Uh, one of those phrases um, that you didn't mention, Van, but one that I've seen used heaps is the great replacement. Um, there used to be quite a far right crackpot theory, but now I'm seeing it like even uh, last year in the year before I saw it at CPAC. Yeah. You know, that's fucking well, terrifying. CPAC has like, gone off stuff. the fucking rails. Yeah, but this is like full-on stuff that uh, a full-on Nazi came up with the idea of the Great Replacement. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's scary how these messages can sort of disguise themselves to that extent. Well, yeah, in, what is it, Charlottesville, the chant in 2017, the chant was like, Jews will not replace us. Yeah. It's like, yeah. what the fuck are you talking about, dude? But, yeah, they're in their own universe. Um, I think the thing that Nate, the, the crucial thing to like take away from Nathan's message or tweet was like the white supremacist mass slaughtering dude mm-hmm. has the same belief set as basically mainstream conservatives now. Like that's fucking crazy. Like probably my parents believe this shit. I'm yeah, trying not to scary. engage them on it. Well, the the follow-up tweets below this also he points to the overlap with you know he says you could basically print any of these uh pieces in the wall street journal as an op-ed and nobody would know the difference yeah it's not far from like a fucking david brooks column you know and like it's just there's a lot more polite society-ness second tweet sorry (laughs) a question this how did you guys beat it last time in the 90s because in the 90s, there was this huge upswell of sort of Tea Party, Ruby Ridge sort of stuff, mm. you know, Waco. How'd you beat it back then? Because you sort of, you guys sort of, you were able to do it then to an extent that we weren't able to do it now. Well, we didn't beat it because clearly it's come back. It's like saying we beat COVID in 2020. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It looks like yeah, we you, you sort of beat it off the ramparts per se. Like, yeah. Quite win, but. There was a few things going on in the 90s, though, that kept it suppressed. One is that the Newt Gingrich, the crazies of the 90s who were running the Republican Party, while they were accommodating the far right, they were also elites, plutocrats who were in control in a world where we didn't have social media yet. And elite party driven politics was still the order of the day. And it's not things are not party driven anymore. They're not even elite driven unless you equate elite with celebrity. And so like we're the this the like the sociological environment, the cultural environment is like very different. But also like we had the national security state. The mood seems to be like it was not cool to be a racist in the nineties. It was too taboo, yeah. you know? So the idea of anti fascism was not politicized. It was well, my grandfather was anti-fascist. That's why he fought the Germans. Like, it's just totally different environment. But none of it actually resolved any of this, you know. And there's a longer explanation. There's a longer story here. But, like, there's this uh, author scholar at UC Davis, Lisa Mudge. She has this book about how, like, left parties in the Western world, Sweden, UK, Germany, and the U.S., they, for all their differences, all the left parties came to detach from their sort of labor uh, mass origins and they instead neoliberalized. And it was the neoliberalization of parties that were supposed to represent the masses that basically created the far right. 
And so like there's a way of understanding the 90s as this moment, not just where like white supremacists were coming back from the Vietnam War and setting up, uh, you know, KKK redux or whatever, but also they had no sort of institutional support for that like for rep institutional representation for them that mattered because the democratic party basically sold out the people uh it's an interesting argument and like it suggests that no matter how good we got at suppressing the far-right crazies in the 90s yeah. we were always going to end up where we are now if we remained a neoliberalized left party it's very it's super interesting argument wow. yeah yeah, I'm going to give that a read. Yeah, it's like a 2,000-page book also. but It's interesting you point to the role of social media, too. And normally I'm not like of the belief that social media has revolutionized the way people radicalize fundamentally. But I was listening to a podcast with a former FBI guy who was talking about Timothy McVeigh, the mm -hmm. Oklahoma City bomber back in the 90s. And he was saying that Actually, Timothy McVeigh had to go to places like Ruby Ridge to observe, to learn from others doing this. Yeah. And nowadays with like 8chan or whatever uh, far right terrorists are using, they can share that information so much faster. So the radicalization takes place at a much quicker rate. So that's also sort of sped up the uh, need for better responses and, and learning and understanding this behavior. Oh, yeah. Way easier to radicalize now. Way easier. Uh, second tweet, Peter Dombrowski, a professor at the Naval War College up in uh, beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. He says, one of the side effects of an oversupply of national security specialists and the oversupply of increasingly under-edited media fora is the deluge of special pleading articles for this or that country, crisis, or issue. And uh, I think this is super insightful. I'm not even sure where to take it exactly. I think he's getting at something important, though, which is like no matter what issue bubbles up in the media, if it if it's remotely like international in flavor, you're going to have a cadre of people who claim to be subject matter experts weighing in on what we ought to be doing with our military or with sanctions power. And it's always going to be one of those two tools. That's basically all we've got in our imagination. And it's the fact of like so many of, of these people of us who I don't know what like I what, what all these people I know what I do for a living. I don't know what all these other motherfuckers are doing, but like they all seem to be on Twitter. And they all seem to be giving quotes to journalists. And they're all it's this big industry now of like national security echo chamber. And it, in some ways, it kind of loosens the hold of the national security establishment over foreign policy discourse. But what it really does, in, more so than that, is like it makes everything into a crisis where a bunch of people have to weigh in and tell us our business and like how to steer policy. A lot of that, I think, is well-intentioned, but it also overly securitizes fucking everything. And so, like, it's not I, f I feel like having a glut of national security, quote unquote, expertise is like not necessarily a good thing for democracy. We do need experts. The kinds of experts that we've produced in the national security world 
are are very much like quote unquote experts because their fucking track record is shit. And I realize that I'm like not fully exempt from that, but I at least am atoning. So fuck. But I actually didn't love this uh, tweet. And I, of course I you didn't I interpret it. What? <laughs> of course you didn't. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm one of these uh, Twitter yeah, national security specialists. You right? Are. And I'm, I'm uh, I took it as sort of downplaying the need to be aware of different countries' crises. And I don't think it necessarily over-securitizes these crises. So like, you know, Myanmar is one one country that I uh, am constantly tweeting about these days because it's really facing a monumental crisis of COVID, uh, military at war with its own people, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I think it's important that we pay attention to these things. I don't think it only calls for security responses. I think it calls for humanitarian responses and assistance and awareness as well. Yeah, but like, I, that's not inherently wrong what you're saying, but like, you're, that means you're relying on whether to advocate for military intervention by deference to the expert. And it just so happens that your expert opinions on this issue are not urging something like military intervention, right? But like the wind blows differently as circumstances change. And that's how we get into bullshit. Like I watched this happen with the North Korea stuff. I was a pundit pre-2017 and it was all sort of copacetic. Nobody was talking about bombing North Korea. That wasn't a thing. Then suddenly the circumstances change a little bit and fucking everybody's talking about bombing North Korea. And it took like a cadre of people who were fucking sane to like hold it off and argue against it and conspire with people in the administration to hold it off. But it's like it I these things can change on a dime and like experts can get co-opted and like you don't want to just defer to the experts all the time. And the problem is that the flip side is also problematic because you cannot simply reject technocratic expertise in a complex world. What I think he's getting at is a response or a correction to the trend, which is like, there is a glut of expertise out there. I don't like that either. Um, I do find a lot of your Myanmar stuff useful. So like for whatever that's worth. <laughs> so like he, I mean, Peter himself is a subject matter expert, you know? So like he's not anti-expertise. He's anti like have the experts tell us what we need to be doing about every single thing around the world is just like a bit much particularly when most of their claims to expertise come from having that like national security establishment worldview i don't know i guess i just would have been more sympathetic if he ended the tweet with like this oversupply has produced too many you know commentators with substack columns that want me to subscribe Mm. or uh you know perhaps he could use his mute button a little more i would like yeah i would like this to be written up as an op-ed actually and then that would give us a chance yeah. to sort of trace trace his reasoning and the consequences and all that because we're like yeah 280 characters it's a little bit tough to judge speaking of op-ed armchair analysis all right time for armchair analysis where we look at a different article each week this week's armchair analysis article comes from Paul Musgrave in Foreign Policy. Uh, the article's title is, You Shouldn't Have to Pay for That IR Masters. Um, I'll admit, I read this last night. I wanted to read it again this morning. I forgot my keys on the way to the office, uh, so I've only read it once. <laughs> this is truly <laughs> armchair. But uh, that said, uh, I, I think it comes from a good place. 
uh, it's definitely addressing an important problem today, uh, which gets at the oversupply of specialized degrees in a marketplace with fewer jobs for those specialized degrees. This is certainly something, I mean, I've talked about this before in this podcast, going to DC, trying to find a job. Personally, I had two master's degrees, and then you quickly learn everyone competing for a think tank gig has these master's degrees already. There are even people with PhDs applying for internships and think tanks, et cetera. Oh my God. Uh, but he's not just talking about the think tank circuit. Uh, in particular, he mentions the State Department, for instance, saying that perhaps they should hire people without these degrees to recalibrate the worth of such a degree and train people on job to sort of um, reset the equilibrium there. So he says, in principle, the problem of master's overproduction is fixable, especially in the foreign policy and international relations sphere. Training for the civilian side of the government could be reorganized to better address the needs of the federal government in an era of great power competition. And he follows by saying, federal agencies could adjust their hiring requirements to broaden intake from the ranks of young college graduates and then pay for their master's degrees only if the job requires them. Similar to the military program for graduate degrees or even open a civilian equivalent of the service branches, war colleges. Um, so I think this is a great starting point for this, this debate, which is 100% uh, valid, needs to be fleshed out. I think personally, I find it breaks down a little bit in um, the sort of where the rubber hits the road. I'm, I'm thinking of friends I have from my master's in international, um, actually area studies is what I did, uh, international studies rather than international relations. Mm. Some of my friends went on with that master's to get jobs in Amazon, are making loads of money now. And perhaps it doesn't apply to all folks with specialized degrees, but I, I think it's, uh, he raises some great points here. I would certainly endorse his recommendation that we could be funding uh, more degrees, uh, particularly to incentivize uh, less commonly taught languages. That's personally how my master's was funded through the State Department's Title IX program. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, some great points in here. Um, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts because I, I, I would push back in some of the sort of practical application of his recommendations. Yeah, I think I might somewhat too, although I did really like the piece overall. I think the thing that vibed with me most about this piece was that like this, this pipeline system of like masters in IR to the job market is definitely broken slash underserved. It's nonsensical to have a system where people have to take on 70 grand of debt, between 70 and 200K of debt, depending on where you're going, to get a master's in IR when the master's in IR everywhere. I've seen the curriculum at like a dozen different schools, and I've taught it myself at like four different schools. The master's in IR does not impart some unique knowledge. If you had a good undergraduate IR training, then um, it's going to it's going to be duplicating a lot of that. In fact, it's basically spending more time on target. And that can be good if you're trying to become a deep subject matter expert in international relations as a discipline. But for one thing, there's a huge gap. And I said this on Twitter, like a huge gap between IR as a discipline and like what gets taught and things like the paradigm wars, for example, versus what, you know, it's the Weber Weberian, like, you know, politics as a vocation versus a discipline what you need to know for foreign policy making or the practice of foreign policy 
is very different. I felt well served by my education. Uh, I actually did. I'm one of these people that used IR theory on the job as a way to like frame choices and a way to diagnose risks. But that's kind of idiosyncratic to me. I don't see a lot of people doing that. And it's possible to be able to do that without having that master's in IR. And frankly, I was actually not well served by my master's in IR. I was better served by my PhD. I thought I learned IR theory pretty well in my master's degree. And then about a third of the way through my PhD training, I realized like, oh, I didn't know shit. And that's kind of a problem too, because that first IR master's in IR was expensive, man. Like what the fuck did I pay for? It's the fact that you can carry such a huge debt burden from trying to attain higher education and then not be able to have a job afterward in that field. That's, that's messed up. Like I'm all for broad education. I'm all for knowledge for knowledge sake, you know, like I'm liberal. I'm obviously a huge fan of like liberal arts in particular and the social sciences too, but this is just not a well-serving system. And I think the norm is not for a master's in IR person to go work at Amazon and get more money even yeah. than the State Department. I think that's like the exception or whatever. People should be able to pursue these these studies without having it cost so much. And one solution to that, I think, or a partial solution is what he suggests, which is like, okay, well, maybe you have the government sort of pay for it if they're willing to acknowledge that it's needed for the job. And then if it's not needed for the job, but then start hiring people out of undergrad. Like what if foreign service officers could come straight out of undergrad instead of like making them go to university of Chicago first and school of foreign service first. I don't know. Yeah. Don't, don't a lot of uh, state department foreign service officers actually, um, I mean, I, I wouldn't assume that all of them have masters from Georgetown. Right. I, I think they do recruit around the country. But I, I don't know what this. Yeah, I didn't mean are. Georgetown literally, but yeah. Although disproportionately, yeah, no, I, like they're the only school of foreign service, as far as I know. So like, they tailor that to be able to feed you into the foreign service. Right, a hundred percent. Yeah, Alex, Jake, Kiara, are you guys gonna do masters in IR? I'm possibly. I'm considering doing a masters of IR, but because of the cost associated with it. It's also trying to figure out if I'm going to go into workforce and have to do my master's part-time. Mm. But then it's so competitive to get into um, fields, especially like um, MFAT, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade in New Zealand, so competitive to get into the graduate program. And I believe there's about 30 spaces and over 500 people will apply for it. They don't require you to have a master's, but uh, you have more of a chance of getting in if you have a master's degree. Yes. I mean, the Foreign Service is like that, too. You it's, you can get in on a BA, but I think you can even get in possibly with no degree, technically. But your odds are greatest, obviously. Like, you're going to look less competitive than the other applicants if they have it and you don't. And that's kind of, I think we've talked about this before, but like that's kind of the problem the master's degree has turned into this de facto credentialing because when mm -hmm. everyone's got it, you look like you're at a disadvantage if you don't, you know? Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm, I am going to end up uh, going along the master's uh, angle for IR. No, it's just when, I don't know. Uh, to be fair, 
a lot of the uh, postgraduates I see doing international relations are pushing 30. So it gives me sort of breath of fresh air. I can sort of live my life a little bit and not be too yeah. intensely scared of getting postgrad before I'm 25 sort of thing. That's a healthy perspective. It never felt optional to me. It felt like something that I obviously had to do if I wanted even a 2% chance of working in this field. And so yeah, pretty much. it seemed yeah. like and the alternative too is like, well, what else am I going to do with my time if I didn't do it? And it's like, well, probably nothing useful, you know, mixed martial <laughs> arts or something. So like, fuck it. What about you, Alex? Uh, yeah. So I'm probably going to go into the MSS program at Vic, not next year, but Master the year after, just because the way that, yeah, just because the way that uni timetables end up finishing in the end of the year, if you're one class behind, but um, I don't really have a problem with paying for it as such because the way the New Zealand like student loan program works it's just kind of like all good like it's not like screwed like the yeah. American way and it's it's not that expensive compared to overseas universities that's I, a huge difference I yeah. want to go into the yeah I want to go into the Ministry of Defense but I know I know a few people who work there and only one of them hasn't got a master's degree and she was basically like a genius like one-off sort of thing from what I've heard and it's the yeah. people that I know that work there say that you don't need anything that you learn in masters to work there. Like you probably wouldn't, you just need to know how to write a report basically. And that's your job yeah. that you need to have this master's degree to get in. Yeah. It helps to know how to think. And if you get a master's degree in, in theory, you've sort of demonstrated that, but like that can happen in undergrad too. Who knows? I, yeah. All right. Time for ask me anything where people, Ask me anything. So for Ask Me Anything this week, we have two questions. The first one is from Anonymous. I've seen a lot of people on the left using campism a lot. What the hell is campism? Yeah, <laughs> it's tricky terrain. So campus are synonymous with, but it doesn't have the same technical meaning as a tanky. And so... When we talk about like a discredited left position or like a left position that's actually not left, we would describe that as campus, campus generally speaking. This comes from the Cold War days when you had the camps of like American Empire or the camp that was against American Empire. And so we've talked about versions of this on the show in the past, like anti-hegemonism, anti-imperialism. There's a, there's a bleed. Of, some of that is legitimate. There's a logic there. But that large camp of just being against kind of Western or American imperialism, it, it has within it the temptation of becoming an outright tankist or a tanky or a campist because you could end up embracing regimes like the CCP in China, which are straight up neo-fascist. They are imperialist themselves, but you don't, yeah. you don't see it because you're only, you're thinking through a campus frame where the enemy is basically American liberalism because American liberalism is really a mask for, uh, you know, white supremacy empire or whatever. There's a way in which that's both overstated and true. But in the American DSA, Democratic Socialists of America, so they're like the institutionalized 
left, like the formal socialists in America. Yeah. One of the things that they're wrangling with internally to themselves right now is how you sort of discredit campism. And they recognize that like it's a toxic, it's a logically problematic position. It's a principled problem. Like it's a problem of compromising left principles, basically socialist principles. It's it's kind of anti-solidarist, you know. But it met, it pretends exactly. like it's solidarist, and so like um, they're working through this right now themselves because like the era of Chapo Trap House has given a lot of life to campus perspectives. I mean, when it comes to this is someone that's sort of in the middle of this pseudo-intellectual quagmire that we call the modern left. It seems that we haven't really made an effort to sort of say what we're for. We've said what we're against. We've told you the world what we're not for, but we haven't really clarified our position. And that's given these sorts of campus and tankies a lot of room to jump in and co-opt it. But they are the people who really don't want to be co-opted with because they're real pieces of shit. Yeah. One of the things I'm worried about, I don't, I'm not, I'm not a DSA member because I'm not formerly a socialist. I'm just not in, oh. hashtag not a Marxist, right? But <laughs> what I, I track it very closely, and like I've, I've read the DSA convention resolutions going back several years, and all this stuff, and like one of the things that kind of concerns me about this part of the left because they are the most organized and the most institutionalized of any alternative to liberal internationalism. One of the things that concerns me is that, like, even when they successfully beat back tankies and campus, what they're left arguing is still an anti-hegemonic position. It's still the basically the restrainer agenda. And so that Dudney Eikenberry argument from the beginning of the show about Quincy, that, that argument that, like, there's no positive agenda in restraint that's overstated, but like they kind of have a point, which is that like if your theory of the case is simply to deconstruct American power, right, to like disembowel statecraft because it's always going to be in service of empire, that's a sticky wicket. That's a difficult position to take. And if, if socialism is supposed to be broad based, if it's supposed to be a mass based movement, you, I don't know that you can get a mass mobilization behind, you know, neuter American statecraft. There are positions within that that are very sellable, right? Like ending endless wars, right? My own, you know, hill to die on is like curbing military superiority and overmatch and like getting out of the militarist mindset. But like the, I, I don't know that if you're, if you're focused on beating back the campists and the tankies, what you're left with after you, even if you're successful with that, that effort is still at, at best and at its most coherent, it's the anti-hegemonist restrainer pose. And there are things that are good in that, but it's ultimately not going to sell. It's not, I, for one thing, I, don't, I, don't, I wouldn't fully endorse that, I don't think anyway, but like, it's not going to sell to the people who control power. So how are you, what's the theory of change here? Like, I, I just don't get it. Like, it doesn't add up to me. 
and I say that as somebody who's sympathetic, you know. Yeah, I've I've often struggled with the same thing. Like I've tried to figure out how this is what going to work, and I've tried to make it work in my head. And you know, I keep saying this to them. It's like explain this to me because I'm really trying to make it work. Yeah, and I'm trying to give you the benefit of the doubt, but it's just not quite not quite there yet. Yeah, I mean, like when you have trouble getting the people who want to be sympathetic, that's not a good sign, I guess. Yeah. So the second question we have is from Leonor Renwood from SAIS. Isaiah, I saw a report that China was using Tibetans to build Bhutan into its empire. How do you make sense of what China's doing in there? Yeah, so foreign policy had this, it's a two-part deep, super deep investigative story. The first one was about China building military outposts in Bhutan unilaterally, without permission, basically taking over uh, Bhutanese territory. Um, and the second part of the investigation is talking about, is I think where this question is probably coming from. And they basically, the piece, the both pieces argue that um, China is building basically settler colonies in Bhutan unilaterally in order to convince Bhutan to give them, give up territory that abuts, that's part of the Himalayas. And China wants that territory in the Himalayas so that it has a superior position relative to India, because India and China, of course, have this uh, territorial dispute in the Himalayas that is unresolved, that turned into a shooting conflict um, or a violent conflict last year 2020 yeah and so like there's the they're both nuclear powers there is a prospect of nuclear war there i think it's pretty marginal um but it's it's not zero unfortunately and it centers on a territorial dispute between what are basically two great powers neither of which happens to be the united states for once and so bhutan is a pawn in uh this game between China and India, and so is Tibet. Tibet was occupied first. Tibet was being used for these purposes first. And so there's this weird thing where Chinese settler colonialism is part of building out China's empire, but in Bhutan, it's not just building out empire for empire's sake. It's about strengthening the border regions, strengthening the periphery, um, in part to preserve territorial integrity, but also to play a better game against India in this back and forth in the Himalayas. So kind of complicated, like mixed motives. But in the end of the, at the end of the day, it's not a good thing, no matter how you slice it. All right, gang. Well, that's going to do it. Bubby, W, wait, what's it? Buymeacoffee.com slash undiplomatic to send us coffees. Um, what's the other thing? Cottonbureau.com. I'm diplomatic for all our sweatshirts and shirts. Cottonbureau.com for our undiplomatic merch. Catch you next time. Peace.